Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. We have a few different topics for you today. We'll kick off as usual with our news roundup in which we will talk about the Android N release that was announced today, Wednesday. Uh, Secondly, we'll talk about the verdict in the Apple eBooks case. And then thirdly, we'll talk about uh, Amazon's new live TV show, which is a bit of a departure for them, but actually fits quite nicely with their overall uh, e-commerce strategy. We'll then move on to our question of the week, uh, which is about 5G. And essentially the question is, what is 5G and should you care? Uh, and then we will wrap up with our final topic that will be um, Samsung's new phones, uh, the embargo on reviews for which was lifted this week. And so a lot of reviews landed yesterday. And so we'll talk through some of those and, and also um, some other stuff around those new phones. And then we'll finish off as usual with our weekly pick. And it's Aaron's turn to recommend something this week. So on to the news roundup. Uh, We'll start with Android N. And if you're not familiar with the way these things normally get announced, typically uh, Google, as with Apple, announces new versions of their mobile operating system at their annual developer event. Uh, And I.O., their developer event, is happening in May this year. That's normally where you'd expect this Android N to be revealed. And yet today, out of the blue, Google suddenly released uh, an early developer preview, uh, and it is important that it is just a developer preview uh, of Android N, uh, as it's called at this point. We don't know what the actual final name will be. It'll be some kind of dessert. Um, But uh, interestingly, this landed the same week as Google updated its version statistics for Android adoption in the wild, as it were, and uh, they showed that Marshmallow, which is the current newest version of Android, Uh, It hit 2.3% of the installed base of Android devices. So, you know, we're just starting to talk about the new version. Uh, Google's starting to reveal more details about the new version of Android, but the previous version is at 2.3%, while, you know, other previous versions are in the sort of 30%. There are two other versions that are in that sort of range, so about a third of the base. Um, And so it just gives you some sense of kind of the the sheer length of the kind of life cycle of these Android versions where, you know, this one will be sort of pre-announced now, probably get a lot more detail around it in May, and then will be released into the wild sometime later in the year. And then it'll be well over a year from that point uh, until it hits even double-digit market share. So very interesting to think about that. But Aaron, what kind of struck you from from the details of this Android N release? Well, you know, I, I think the feature enhancements were interesting, and I'm sure they'll be... But, you know, all the stuff that's happening in, in uh, mobile OS space right now is all just refinements. There's not... I don't know, it just seems like there's less and less space for really dramatic innovation when it comes to mobile operating systems. I think what's interesting to me about this Android N announcement is that it's coming out so much earlier than Google I.O. Typically, you know, developers only get access to the developer versions at I.O., which is in May. And I think what's interesting here is this two months of lead time. I'm curious what what Google intends with this early release. Like, I don't know if it means that they're going to be pushing the N version out sooner than later, or if it means that they feel like they need more lead time, lead time to try certain things out um, before they, uh, you know, because it, it also, from what I've read, it sounds like they're going to be adding even more stuff as the developer previews, you know, as the different versions of the developer preview get get pushed out to people. And so, I don't know, I, this early schedule is the thing that's most fascinating to me because this is a break from, you know, habit over the last few years, and I'm curious what Google has in mind. 
Yeah, the, the two things that Google specifically mentioned in, in announcing it today were that by releasing a work-in-progress build earlier in development, we have more time to incorporate developer feedback. And so even in this blog post, they're asking explicitly for developers to give them feedback on what's working, what's not, and so on. And then it says the earlier preview allows us to hand off the final end release to device makers this summer. So it will definitely be landing earlier than it usually does, which tends to be around the fall. Uh, you know, Again, that doesn't mean that it's going to be in devices that are on sale any earlier than the fall. Uh, and this time around, you know, a lot of the flagship devices didn't launch until well after that. Um, but yeah, they do seem to be moving the release window up a little bit uh, in terms of both the developer preview and the kind of final version that goes to device makers. Um, but yeah, it, it felt from a feature perspective as a lot of catch up with other platforms. And this has been the pattern for the last several years now between iOS, Windows and Android. There's, there's been a lot of borrowing back and forth. And, you know, the new features in Android include multi-window support, um, which, you know, obviously iOS got last year. Um, you've got direct reply notifications and bundled notifications, which have been on iOS for some time now. There's some efficiency stuff, uh, which is a bit more unique to Android, but also dealing with some of the unique challenges that Android has. Um, and there's other stuff that no doubt will come out as, as developers work their way through the documentation. But yeah, it very much feels like incremental improvements, a lot of which are borrowed from other platforms already out there. So interesting to watch that happening. Um, so the second topic for our news roundup was this Apple eBooks verdict. And obviously, there's been a long time in the works. This is a case that's been going on for a long time with multiple appeals. And uh, do you want to just talk us through kind of what actually happened this week from a, a legal perspective and kind of the significance of that? Sure. So the, the Supreme Court gets, you know, hundreds of appeals every year that it doesn't have room on the calendar to consider. I haven't looked it up lately, but if I remember right, it usually considers something around 80 to 100 appeals every year, and that's because there are only nine of them, and they have to go through these things together as a group. And so they keep a really busy calendar, and it means they have to turn a lot of stuff down. When, they, when they're when they trying to decide what to accept as an appeal, they usually, I mean, they, they're kind of two big buckets. They consider one is where there's a great injustice taking place, and the other is where um, there's a disagreement among the circuit courts about what the law should be. That's something called a circuit split. And uh, in, in this case, I, I don't think there either of those conditions existed. I mean, obviously, there's no circuit split because the case that the Justice Department was pushing against Apple was a one-off thing. Um, you know, the, Apple was the only one doing this price fixing in the ebooks market that they were being accused of. But the other thing is that. Uh, you know, the, I don't think the Supreme Court saw any great injustice in this. I mean, the, the sad reality of it is that Apple did collude to fix prices. I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that this is the case, and I don't think the injustice was there. It's it's the absurdity of the Justice Department pushing this that kind of makes it all feel so crazy because essentially they were entrenching the monopoly power of Amazon and the ebooks market through this case, right, by bringing this... By bringing this complaint against Apple, they were essentially saying, you know, you know, hey, give Amazon its monopoly power back. And that's right. been the effect. I mean, the result has been mm -hmm. that Amazon's, you know, because of this case, the, the various publishers weren't able to collude and fix prices. And the result of that meant Amazon essentially took the driver's seat in ebook pricing and and, and now, you know, the vast majority of ebooks are sold through Amazon and, and Apple, nor anybody else have really been able to touch them in that regard. So it's kind of just a weird thing. I mean, Apple shouldn't have done what it did. Um, 
I'm, I'm not sure that the Justice Department made best use of its time, though, in pursuing this case. I mean, there are all kinds of situations that they don't go after because the, their priorities are more pressing elsewhere. And it seems strange that that wasn't the case here. Um, I'm not sure the cost to consumers was all that much, was all that great um, with the price fixing that Amazon or that Apple and the publishers had done in the sense that uh, they've, they've handed over monopoly power to Amazon. So, so right, the cost yeah. of consumers is just as high, but in different ways, or at least that's how it appears to me. Yes, absolutely. No, I agree. It's, um, I mean, it's just the sheer time that this stuff takes to work its way through the legal system too. It just often by the time the outcome is known, the market has moved so far on from where it started that it just feels like what a waste of time, you know, like if the market had just been kind of left to itself, I think these things probably would have worked their way out um, a long time ago. So, yeah, it also sometimes feels a bit futile. Um, the third of our news roundup topics is Amazon's new live TV show, um, which is uh, an interesting departure from them. Obviously, they, they have their prime video subscription, but this is not um, really part of that. This is something that's going to be on the Amazon website uh, and the idea here is it's live, which is really unusual for an online company in an age when we're all moving away from live and linear broadcasting. Uh, but it's essentially fashion-oriented, and it's sort of like QVC or the shopping channel where Amazon's going to have these three hosts that are going to be talking through various products in, a, in an honest way, apparently not necessarily a hard kind of push promotional way, but talking about some new products. And as they talk about them, rather than there being advertising within the video itself, along the bottom of the video, you'll have links to those products on Amazon where you could go and buy them potentially. And so to my mind, this kind of feels like a form of sort of native advertising on Amazon. Um, and, you know, Amazon's been growing its advertising business for some time now. It's pretty subtle. It doesn't get talked about a lot and it's not something it breaks out explicitly um, within its reporting, for example. But there's an increasing amount of advertising on Amazon. It's, it, and it, as I say, it's subtle, but it's been growing and it's something that's making its way into some of their video stuff uh, where they now have some ad-supported TV shows. And this is now a new and interesting form of advertising that then basically goes back to the Amazon website where the sales would actually happen. So I find this kind of a fascinating sort of innovation from them. What was your take on it? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it too. I think the I mean, there's no other company in the world that could do this because Amazon has its studio, you know, efforts. So they have built up expertise to actually pull off a show like this with hopefully high production values. Um, I also love the concept whether or not the show, you know, will be any good. I, I, I love, I mean, curation has a ton of value when it comes to retail, especially in things like fashion. Um, there's just a lot out there, a lot of products out there to consider. And I think... You know, the benefit of a show like this is that it, it helps people find their way. And you can see there's a whole bunch of, I mean, there are, there are innumerable startups that are all about curation for shopping. And Amazon entering this space makes all kinds of sense. The other reason I'm fascinated by it is because I think augmented viewing um, is the future of television in so many different domains. Um, you know, I, we've talked before about the new MLB app when Apple announced the Apple TV and how exciting that was because of all the added stuff besides just watching the game. And I think this is another example of this augmented viewing approach where, you know, rather than having a second screen, which has been all the talk right now about TV watching habits, it's really integrating the second screen into the primary screen in uh, what hopefully is a really cool way. And so, you know, whether or not this show is successful, I guess I'm, 
less interested in that than I am in the format being tested out and this idea of augmented viewing being more compelling. Um, and the secondary screen, the second screen sort of, like I said, being merged into the principal one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been interesting. There's been some experimentation around that with the new Apple TV and some of the shopping channels on that. And obviously beyond that on the Apple TV with with sports channels and so on. So yeah, I, I think this can be a really interesting trend to watch. Uh, 4K TVs lend themselves particularly well to this because of course you could still get an HD video stream and sort of a quarter of the screen and then fill up the other three quarters with other stuff. And a lot of the demos that I've seen at trade shows for 4K have taken advantage of that. So I think this is something that we'll see a lot more of um, you know, personally, I, I still want most of my viewing to take place in a sort of full screen mode. But for certain things like this Amazon show, it does make a lot of sense. So um, we'll see how that that goes going forward. Uh, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I mentioned earlier this week, the question is, what is 5G and should you care? Um, and this is uh, off the back of a, a quick primer that I did for Tech Opinions Insiders uh, on Monday, and, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes. But um, wanted to kind of expand on that a little bit, talk about it in a bit more detail. Uh, but I've been doing the research for this one this week, and so Aaron is going to be asking the questions. So normally we start with sort of, you know, uh, an introductory question rather than the big one. But in this case, it's the same question. Yeah, what is 5G and why should I care about it? <laughs> well, we'll come to the why should you care about it later. But so what is 5G? I think, you know, 5G as a term obviously builds on earlier uh, similar terms like 3G and 4G. But really to understand what 5G is, you have to go back to the beginning. So this is the fifth generation uh, mobile services technology. Um, the first generation wasn't called 1G at the time, just like the First World War wasn't called World War One until after the Second World War. And that put it in context effectively and you started to see it as the beginning of a pattern. Um, and in fact, it wasn't really until 3G that this whole generational sort of nomenclature came into effect. But first generation mobile services launched in the early 80s. Second generation uh, services, though they weren't called that at the time, uh, was when digital services launched and that was really in the early 90s. And then 3G really came in in the early 2000s and um, you know, 2G brought in digital, 3G brought in sort of basic broadband services. So suddenly allowed uh, things like mobile video at a very basic sort of bit rate um, and other sort of internet type technologies uh, to be adopted on mobile. Um, and so there's a whole range of technologies that kind of came into play there. Uh, that we enabled a lot of the mobile internet as we know it today. Uh, And then 4G came in in the 2010s, and 4G really was about a step change in speeds and latency. So much faster speeds, you know, up to 100 megs in in commercial services today and and significant headroom above that, and we'll talk about that. Um, But also very much lower latency, which meant that suddenly uh, 4G was appropriate for voice and video calling and other things like that, which 3G really wasn't appropriate for because of the very high kind of lag and latency that was in 3G. So it was a big step change in speeds and in latency, reducing latency, specifically in 4G. And so 5G is kind of the next generation. Um, And so it's been called 5G just because it seems like the next generation after what we have today. And, And obviously, you know, 4G is only sort of a few years old in terms of actually being available to consumers today, but we're already talking about 5G, this fifth generation of mobile services. So with each of those previous generations, we could attach a technology to it, like 4G was LTE, essentially, in the United States. Do we know the technology for 5G yet? Do we know what it is? 
No, and that's the biggest challenge here is that we're at a stage in the development of 5G where we don't know the answers to a lot of the questions yet. And so one of them is, you know, the technology. Um, so there are standards bodies that own these standards, you own the 4G standard and so on. And so they will eventually codify um, and formalize a 5G standard, but it hasn't happened yet. That's something that's being worked on right now. Uh, so what we have for the time being is a set of possible sort of theories about what 5G could be. Um, and even those aren't completely kind of unified in terms of their definitions, um, you know, let alone getting to a single technology and a single sort of set of spectrum bands or anything like that. Uh, but the biggest challenge is that 4G was particularly sort of expansive in its definition, or at least there wasn't the same kind of upper ceiling on 4G that there was with some of the earlier technologies. You know, with 3G, it was fairly clear that you get to a certain point from a bandwidth perspective and those technologies weren't going to cut it anymore. Uh, with 4G... Uh, the upper, the sort of headroom for speed in particular is much, much higher. And, you know, we have LTE deployed today, but there are other technologies like LTE Advanced and others that are beginning to be deployed around the world that, you know, increase speeds and so on much more even than what we have today. So there's a lot more headroom. There isn't the same kind of ceiling that we're bumping into where we kind of say, ah, this isn't going to cut it. We need something new. And so if there is going to be a 5G, it has to be yet another sort of step change in some of the things that 4G did well uh, and, you know, a fix for some of the few things that 4G doesn't do well. And so it'll be a really significant bump in speeds in all likelihood. It'll be even further reductions in latency. So from a speed perspective, you're talking about gigabit plus per second speed, so kind of like Google Fiber, uh, but over wireless networks. Um, from a latency perspective, you're talking about several milliseconds to under one millisecond in terms of latency, so almost instantaneous communication back and forth across these networks. And then the third element's a bit more nebulous, but it's really about the Internet of Things and how this network might better support the Internet of Things. And there are several elements to that. One of them is about you know, areas where you have a very dense set of sensors that need to be managed by a network and where the current network isn't necessarily best positioned to do that. Some of it's about the network being very smart and how it allocates power and that kind of thing to different devices uh, to meet their specific needs. So if you have some devices on the network that only have very low throughput requirements or very occasional communication requirements, they can be provisioned differently and use less bandwidth and less power and so on so that you could have, say, sensors in the field that could be there for 10 years without needing to have the battery replaced whereas other devices like smartphones and tablets and so on might have much more powerful ways of interacting with the network and, and do what they do best, but obviously with a, the downside of shorter battery life. And so there's that flexibility that will be built in as well. Um, and uh, and so there's the, these are kind of the main things, the sort of step change in speed, the step change in latency, this better support for the Internet of Things. They're, they're things that people are expecting to see in 5G. And so there are several different versions of, of kind of 5G floating around in terms of the theory here. Uh, and a lot of the, the sort of big equipment vendors that make the equipment that runs these networks are starting to talk up their 5G story, even though it hasn't really been sort of standardized yet and there is no single technology. So if there's no single technology yet, I mean, it's already been in the press that Verizon and AT&T are both field testing something. So they're testing something. And But I'm curious, it, there's no, if there's no standard yet, what exactly are they testing and... The other question is, you know, in the U.S. for a long time, we had a division in in cell phone technologies, right, between uh, GSM and CDMA. Um, are we going to see a similar division between Verizon, AT&T, and maybe the other carriers? What's being tested and, and what chance is there of a, a unification of a standard? 
Right. And I, the good news is that with LTE, there was eventually a convergence around a single 4G technology in the US. And that's been a good thing because now all cell phones can basically be, you know, single skew cell phones rather than having to have two different versions. Um, you know, they support all the LTE bands and so on. You use all of the carriers now use SIM cards. And so there's been a lot of convergence around these technologies. But if you go back a few years and you remember the early days of 4G, Sprint tried to kind of steal a march on the rest of the industry by deploying a WiMAX network, which they termed 4G before the other carriers kind of launched their LTE networks. Uh, and that was an example of what can happen when there's this sort of race to be first with these technologies. And to some extent, you're seeing that same instinct kicking in now with Verizon and AT&T, where they both want to be seen as forward-looking, where they want to be seen as deploying and testing the latest technologies as early as possible. But to the point that we made earlier, these things haven't been standardized yet. There is no single 5G technology. They each have their own theories about it. And so the risk is that they go off down a path that uh, doesn't end up being the path that the standards uh, take. And so they're, they're off on a sort of a dead end, essentially, that doesn't go anywhere technologically speaking. And so uh, these companies are testing various things. Um, they're doing it in some cases with you know, their equipment vendor partners who are obviously trying to push their story as well. So Samsung's working very closely with Verizon. This is the, the network equipment part of Samsung, not, not the part that makes smartphones. Um, they're working closely together on, on Verizon's 5G testing, but they're testing a variety of things and they're certainly not going to be committing to stuff. I think all the carriers kind of learn their lesson from what Sprint did last time around, but they're basically testing things that could be part of 5G. So testing denser arrays of, of network equipment, for example, or testing higher throughput uh, using new frequency bands. And so that's one of the things that's likely to be part of 5G is we move into new frequency bands. And in some cases, they're much higher frequencies um, than have been used for cellular services, which have fantastic throughput, but tend to have shorter ranges and oftentimes need line of sight. In other words, you have to have a direct line that's unobstructed between the cell tower and, and whatever is receiving the signal. And so uh, they'll be testing some of that and, and figuring out some of the pros and cons of some of those approaches and tweaking them. And obviously these carriers will also be hoping to influence the standards bodies. If, if they're successful in their testing, they'll want to bring that uh, the results of that testing back to the standards bodies and say, hey, we've been testing this, this works really well, we think you should implement this. Because if they do, then that carrier has a head start. So there is a risk for fragmentation, but I think generally the carriers have kind of learned their lessons around all this, uh, and they're likely to um, move in a direction that, that ends up being kind of more unified than fragmented longer term. So how do they compete then if they're all in the same technology, they don't have the barriers to entry that they sort of grew up on? So, I mean, what, is, what keeps somebody in the future from switching from one network to the other, especially now that, you know, contracts are, are almost entirely gone away as well? Yeah, and that's going to be the big challenge. And obviously, it's, it already exists, to your point, about some of the changes that already happened in the market until now. Now, they're all, all using LTE. A lot of these devices can switch networks now. Uh, and the contracts were a lot looser than they used to be. Obviously, until now, you've seen the carriers really talk up their network coverage still. And so even if they're using the same technology, they may not have the same coverage. They may not have the same strength of signal and quality of signal in different places. And so you know, Verizon has very much competed on that message over the last few years, AT&T to a great extent as well. And T-Mobile has been talking up how much better their network's been getting. Sprint is saying that in a year or two, they, they expect to have you know the best network performance uh, of any of these major carriers, you know, still some skepticism about that in the industry, but 
that's their goal. But at some point, we get to parity on LTE. And so that's why these carriers are starting to move so quickly towards uh, testing and deploying 5G is because they know that's very quickly going to become the next battleground. And so they want to be ready when the time comes. Having said all of that, a lot of the fight in the next round will be about how these companies have deployed their networks uh, from the perspective of kind of architecture and strategy and so on. Because in the past, you basically had to roll out completely new equipment to each cell site as you wanted to deploy new technologies. And that was very expensive. It meant you know a lot of ripping and replacing and so on. And so a lot of the carriers have moved to new types of network architectures and topologies where it's a lot easier to swap out or add new equipment uh, and new capabilities in the network without having to do massive truck rolls, without having to rip and replace equipment entirely. And so what we'll see when 5G does get deployed is how well have these carriers kind of planned for the future? How flexible are those networks that they've deployed? How easily can they deploy this new technology such that they can get it out there very quickly and increase and improve their coverage and, and the quality of that coverage compared to what they've been able to do in the past. So that will be another interesting thing to watch when the time comes. And certainly you'd expect the carriers to talk about the advantages of each of their different approaches to this. So that makes it sound like we might see 5G relatively quickly. I mean, what is the time frame before we start seeing phones and carriers with 5G technology? Right, good question. And so I think... Um, in some ways, it's helpful to go back to where we started the conversation with this kind of generational shifts. You know, 1G was early 80s, 2G was early 90s, and so on. If you follow that pattern, 5G should land somewhere in the early 2020s. And that's actually probably about right. Um, so in 2016 now, obviously, it's going to be another probably at least a year or two until the standards are finalized, might even take a bit longer than that. And then once the standards are finalized, then equipment vendors have to start making equipment that's compatible with it. The carriers have to start making deployment plans. And then, you know, the rollout itself, even, you know, with the new technologies and things that I mentioned, it's still going to take quite a while to get to meaningful coverage. And so I think 2020 is probably realistic as far as actually seeing large scale commercial deployments in market and then having devices to match because that's the other side of things, you know, Apple, Samsung. The other device vendors have to actually make devices that are compatible with the networks because otherwise the networks, frankly, don't do anybody any good. So, um, you know, it'll be a number of years before we see that combination of device ability, availability and network availability in major markets at scale. Um, and so, yeah, 2020 probably seems like a reasonable bet. So, you know, don't feel like you have to upgrade your LTE smartphone just yet because it's going to be likely uh, three or four more generations of smartphones before we get to something that's compatible with 5G. So one last question. What I mean, if, if you were if you were in business running a company, what company would you be scared to run with 5G on the horizon? I mean, this sounds like it could be pretty disruptive technology to the way a lot of things work. What would if you were a business owner, what business would you be most nervous to own? Yeah, so I think the cable companies are probably the ones that are most under threat from all of this because the, the bandwidth that you're going to see on these networks is going to be so much faster than what you've seen on 3G and 4G networks that suddenly it will become competitive with even the faster broadband speeds on some of these wireline networks. And, and with that also comes a lot more efficiency in terms of how much it costs to run these networks that will make it more economically feasible for these companies, the wireless companies, to run sort of standard broadband services off the back of these networks, especially to the extent that they densify their networks and put cell towers closer to homes and so on, and so they can manage 
capacity they're much better and so there is potential that you know the cable companies suddenly find some real competition on the broadband front where they've only had it in very limited ways from some of the telecoms companies until now through through their fiber deployments so they're the companies I'd be most worried about at this point. And, you know, obviously they're already facing a threat on the TV side. If the broadband side of their business gets undermined as well, then suddenly, you know, what do they have to stand on? So they're the ones I'd certainly be most most worried about at this point. Although, again, it's, you know, four or five years off at least. Well, that was a fascinating rundown. Thanks, Jan. All right. Well, thanks for asking the questions. Our final topic is Samsung's new phones, the Galaxy S7 and the Galaxy S7 Edge. Um, these two new phones both uh, first announced at the Mobile World Congress a couple of weeks ago and we did talk about them briefly when they were announced but this week the embargo lifted for reviews of those phones uh, and so we saw the usual uh, plethora of reviews from different companies that are in the business of doing that kind of thing uh, and so we wanted to just talk about the phones, the reviews that we've been reading and, and some of what we've picked up from those reviews and just generally how Samsung seems to be positioning these phones in the market. So, Aaron, what was your take, first of all? Well, these look like really nice phones. I, I mean, uh, I, I think the universal praise I saw from all the reviews I read was that the build quality was impressive, that people were happy to hold this in their hand, that they like both of the models, that they really felt like it was physically a premium experience. They also had a lot of great things to say about the cameras, which is great as well. Um, you know, it's funny, I think that's where the biggest battleground lies ahead for uh, smartphone manufacturers is in the cameras. I think a lot of the other stuff has been figured out, and we talked about this before in an episode a couple weeks ago, but um, it's great to see big advancements happening on the camera side. Um, although I don't know you necessarily call it big announcements, but it, it definitely, but they are big under the hood. I mean, there were a lot of fit and finish type improvements to the cameras this time around that, that seemed to make reviewers really happy. Um, in particular, they talked about the speed of focus, which is a big deal with a, what essentially now is a point and shoot camera. Um, and, uh, and also the low light capacity in these phones seems to be really impressive if not best in class among any major you know uh, smartphone out there yeah i mean i had a chance to play with both these phones a few weeks ago um shortly before they were announced um i got a little preview of them and you know they are really solid devices they feel really nice in the hand they, they do feel very much more premium devices from a hardware perspective um, samsung had a couple of demos set up where they had the cameras uh they had the Samsung phones set up next to iPhones in this sort of box situation that sort of mimicked an outdoor scene with different lighting and so on and showed how quickly the Samsung phones would refocus uh, after changes in lighting. And uh, the Samsung phones have a much wider field of view as well. Um, so they capture a lot more of the scene than an iPhone would. And, um, you know, these demos are always set up to put the phones in the best possible light. And so that wasn't, you know something that I would take as gospel for all situations, but certainly they performed impressively under those circumstances. And it feels like, you know, even with some of the better Samsung phones in the past, the camera was always a letdown. And I feel like over the last couple of years, the Samsung cameras have really caught up uh, with the iPhone, at least in some respects. I think the iPhone still has some advantages, but, um, you know, they, they've got very good now. You know, the hardware is now very nice. Um, and it's really the software that still kind of lets the Samsung phones down. Um, they've definitely toned down the gimmickiness. They've toned down some of the UI customizations and so on. But at a time when Android in its sort of stock vanilla form is very, very good, 
um, you know, the Samsung customizations still make it feel a lot kludgier and uglier, frankly, than it, it used to be, that it needs to be rather, um, if they would just kind of peel back some more of that. Um, having said that, they do seem to have made some advancements in terms of actually making the software more appealing uh, in terms of specific features. So it's not the design of the software as such, but there are some really nice new software features in there that are very clever um, that, that you know make the device perform better in certain circumstances. So I think they've got better at differentiating on software in some areas, but there's still a lot of that kind of bloatware and, and, and ugly stuff in there that really doesn't need to be there and, and really doesn't belong on a device that really has such nice hardware at this point. Yeah, you know, I, it seems like they don't really understand that if they want to be in the premium phone space, they need to have the software be a premium experience as well. I, I think the minute, for example, you have two versions of the same, you know, functionality, like two email apps, two messaging apps, I think once you have that, you already are sending a message that they aren't giving you the best because they're giving you two, right? And so, right, right. so is one of these the best or are they both average? Like, why don't I just mm-hmm. have one that's the best version of, of the thing that I'm, you know, using? And that that's the part that kind of baffles me. What really surprises me about this is why Samsung hasn't locked that down. It seems like they've they opened the door years ago to the carriers to come in and you know and and load in all this bloatware and i don't understand why samsung hasn't kicked them out yet it it doesn't make sense to me because galaxy phones among android phones galaxy phones you know still do pretty well i mean samsung as a company has suffered in the smartphone space but that's mostly been on the low end on the high end galaxy phones are still you know the, the the probably the most desired of all the premium android phones and i don't understand why they haven't sort of you know, rested back full control. I mean, Apple does it. And Walt Mossberg pointed this out in his review of the phones this week, you know, basically saying, look, Apple Apple has no trouble working with the carriers and keeping custom carrier software off of the phones. And it just, it. he mentioned this, and I agree, it seems strange that Samsung hasn't, hasn't taken over the software experience entirely rather than letting the, the carriers, you know, throw their junk in. Yeah, I think I don't wonder. I'm trying to think of the best analogy, but you know, iPhones have been this way from the beginning, and so you know, they always made clear that they would not compromise on some of these things. You know, wouldn't put carrier logos on phones, wouldn't put carrier apps on phones, uh, and so you know, they've never had to kind of compromise around that, and so they never had to walk that back. And I think you know, Samsung in the first few rounds of the Galaxy S series. Uh, actually made custom hardware for different carriers as well. And so it's been four or five years now since they moved to sort of single SKUs globally for these phones. But, you know, that was the first big step. And it just feels like they're kind of negotiating from a position of weakness still, or at least maybe they feel they are. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, carriers are obviously the major sales channel for these phones, for Samsung, and they are competing against other Android smartphone makers. And some of them are getting increasingly good. Um, and undercutting them on price too. And so Samsung really needs these carrier channels to sell as many of them as they can. The carriers typically lend a lot of promotional and marketing weight to new phone launches and things like that. And so Samsung wants to keep them happy with with that. Um, and so I think this bloatware and so on is still part of that picture of you know, Samsung wanting to keep the carriers happy and making concessions in order to do that. But of course, they're doing it at the expense of keeping customers happy. And that's a trade-off that Apple hasn't been willing to make, but Samsung apparently currently is. Um, you know, the other side of this, <clears throat> excuse me, 
is that Samsung obviously wants to continue to separate itself from the other Android devices on the market. And so in addition to the carrier bloatware that's there, there's a lot of Samsung's own apps. And so it has its own browser. There are plugins now that do ad blocking in the Samsung browser, although they were initially chucked out of the app, the app store on, on Google Play. Um, and so you know they are still trying to set themselves apart. And so to the extent that every Android phone comes with the same Google apps pre-installed that can't be removed by either the OEM or the carrier, uh, Samsung has to layer its own apps on top, and that's obviously far from ideal as a situation, but that's what you're dealing with if you're on Android, and, and that's one of the biggest challenges that they still have to deal with. And they are shifting some of that competition into hardware now, where obviously you've got the Gear VR for virtual reality experiences. You've now got this Gear 360 camera. Um, you know, some of the other vendors doing other things, but from a hardware perspective around all this, obviously Samsung has its range of uh, smartwatches as well. Um, you know, there's some differentiation there, but it's really tough for them to compete around the software. And, and when they try to, they often kind of fall flat in terms of just duplicating functionality rather than really adding value. Yeah. Um, one of the things that pleasantly surprised me about these phones was that Samsung seemed to have listened to complaints from customers about a couple features, specifically the waterproofing and the SD cards because those were ditched in the last iteration of the Galaxy line and now it's and now those are back and i think what what i what i the reason i'm heartened by that is because Samsung seems to be focusing less on coming up with a new gimmick every edition and rather just trying to continually refine and bringing features back like those two like the waterproofing and SD cards seem to be um, responding to actual demand rather than trying to create or invent demand from some new gimmick. Um, the thing that surprised me, though, most about the SD card coming back is, and I, and I read this in one review, and I, I guess I don't know for sure that it's true because I haven't verified it, but from what I read is that Samsung is going to max out the internal storage on their phones at 32 gigs. So if you want to expand, you have to expand through an SD card, um, which... I, to be honest, kind of surprised me because it, it, it just seems like there'd be plenty of people willing to pay more for an internal storage upgrade, and that's where there's easy, easy margins to be made. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the SD card, you're right about the 32 gigs. That is the standard, and that's one reason I think why Samsung did this is they can now have a single SKU from a storage perspective uh, and not have to have every different combination of onboard memory and color and everything else. So it's 32 gigs of standard, and then you basically use SD cards to expand the storage. So that's a trade-off that they made there. Uh, Android used to be kind of painful from the perspective of managing onboard versus uh, external storage, and so it's improved in that respect. So I think that's probably more manageable now than it was. But... Um, one of the other things is that businesses, there are certain businesses and the police are part of this and, and other businesses are too, where they really want to be able to have separate storage for certain files, uh, either in case the device gets lost um, and they can make the, the external storage inaccessible or uh, if the device has to be impounded for some reason, say a police officer is involved in a case where they're being investigated and the, the, the files on the device need to be impounded, they can just hand over the SD card and the officer can keep the phone. And there are a lot of businesses where they want to separate the two as well. So as I understand it, it was at least in part a concession to business customers, which is another area where Samsung's been putting a lot of emphasis is on winning business customers. And they're really the only Android smartphone vendor that does that. Uh, and so that is one area of differentiation where they really have been able to set themselves apart from the rest of the Android pack is pursuing businesses. They have this whole Knox security suite that replicates a lot of what BlackBerry used to do and still does actually, but just less relevant now. 
Um, but uh, there's a lot of that going on. And the SD card thing obviously has broader relevance, but it was partly at least inspired by businesses saying, hey, we really need this. Yeah, I, I, I just want to add, you know, I, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what the next year brings for Samsung. I mean, they've obviously had a really rough go of it. And I think it'll be curious to watch them settle into the premium space as as kind of their bread and butter now. Because for a long time, it was always those lower-end Android phones where they were making the majority of their money. But that market seems to be being overtaken by competitors and it'll be curious to see you know how i mean do they settle into the same unprofitable territory right that uh like htc has settled into or you know are they able to to maintain and carve out a space in premium phones where they can be making money along with apple right yeah and that's you know as long as they have the scale they should be better off than some of these smaller companies but there's still a lot of challenges for them. And, you know, the carriers here in the U.S. are all announcing buy one, get one offers for the new Samsung Galaxy phones already. So there's a lot of aggressive promotion around it, which suggests, you know, their average selling price may end up being lower. Um, and so they're sacrificing margins and sacrificing ASPs in, in, in favor of trying to maintain shipments. Something's got to give. So uh, we'll see how that goes over the next few quarters, but I suspect it's going to continue to be pretty challenging for them. Well, let's wrap up with our uh, weekly pick. And uh, as a reminder, this is where we take it in turns to recommend something that we've been enjoying or using that we think our listeners might enjoy as well. And this time around, it's Aaron's recommendation. So a lot of my a lot of my weekly picks over the month, uh, you know, over all these episodes has, have been related to cooking. This is one of those. Um, I, about six months ago, I think I recommended a cooking show on PBS called The Mind of a Chef. I really liked it because it was a unique approach to um, a cooking show because it wasn't about, you know, it wasn't so much one of these shows where you have a celebrity chef who sort of, you know, is this dominant personality through the entire show. What I liked about Mind of a Chef was they take a half season and focus it on one chef and you sort of learn about these professional chefs and their their lives and their you know, backgrounds and their passions and so forth. Um, Netflix has, has had a show since last year called Chef's Table, which is similar in that sense to Mind of a Chef, um, except that they only do one episode. It's about an hour long, just under an hour long, on, on, on different chefs from around the world. Um, and the reason I'm, rec I'm recommending this based on only having watched the first episode, the reason it popped up on my radar is because um, Netflix just ordered three more seasons of the show, which is a big deal, I mean, to get a three-season order for any new show. And, uh, and so I went and watched the first episode of season one, um, which is an episode about a chef named Massimo Bottura, who is an Italian chef who sort of shook up the traditional Italian cuisine um, in Modena, um, Italy. It's a fascinating story, and he's a great personality. And to be honest, I like this show. Based on this one episode, I like it better than Mind of a Chef. Um, you just really get like this fantastic full picture of this personality. I think Massimo is especially charismatic, and so. Uh, but I've heard great things about the other episodes. But Massimo is really charismatic and fascinating, and and I really enjoyed watching this. And and the way he treats food as art is different than what I've seen other people do. You know, in the various cooking shows and articles and things that I 
that I check into. So, um, so the so the my recommendation is Chef's Table. It's on available on Netflix. There are six episodes now. Like I said, there are three more seasons coming. The first one will be right. This season two will be arriving this spring, and we'll be covering six new chefs from different parts of the world, including Brazil, Slovenia, and the United States and Thailand. So. Um, anyway, it's a really great show, and it's really well done. The music is beautiful. The the filming is is beautiful. I, I think it's a show that a lot of people could really enjoy. Great, and because it's on Netflix, unlike some of the other things that we recommend, if you already have a Netflix subscription, it's free. So uh, you should be able to enjoy that, I guess. And uh, we'll we'll put a link to it uh, in the show notes as we will with everything else that we've talked about today. So thank you, Aaron, and thanks to all of you for being with us again. We hope you've enjoyed it. We welcome your feedback as always uh, via Twitter or on the website. And uh, please leave us a review on iTunes as well. That helps us to get discovered by more people. So thanks very much, and we'll be with you again next week. Bye-bye.